0: Happy Monday, my little Liberty Lions, and welcome to your favorite Libertarian podcast, the original Libertarian Variety Show, Lions of Liberty. Before we get to today's show... I want to tell you about something that's been going on recently. We have been demonetized, demonetized on YouTube. That means we can't make a dime off our videos on YouTube just after we put a lot of time and money into making a lot of video interviews for you guys. Thanks to our support on Patreon. Of course, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Liberty. But I want to tell you about another way you can fight back against the man, and that's by purchasing some delicious coffee, because we have an amazing coffee that we have partnered with anarcho-coffee to create, and it is called The Morning Roar, and it is delicious. It is a medium dark roast, and it is a fantastic way to start your day and to start your week as you listen to your Monday flagship Lions of Liberty podcast hosted by me. So head over to lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. Grab yourself some Morning Roar. I will also post the link in today's show notes, which you can find over at lionsofliberty.com slash 410. Where's your home? All right, my guest today is a Venezuelan-American freelance writer. You can find his writing at the Mises Institute, at Big League Politics, and at the Advocates for Self-Government. He is also the author of How Socialism Destroyed Venezuela and the 10 Myths of Gun Control. Very pleased to welcome for the very first time Jose Nino. Jose, are you ready to roar?
1: Hell yeah, man. Let's get this started.
0: All right, man. And, uh, you know, very pleased to speak with you for the first time. I've been familiar with your work for a while here. And, you know, we've got a whole bunch of stuff specifically relating to Venezuela that I want to get into. But first, it's your first time on the show. Why don't you start off telling all the lions out there a bit about yourself, uh, your childhood, a little bit about where you grew up and uh, how you became interested in libertarian ideas?
1: Well, I was originally born in Venezuela, but I came to the States when I was pretty young, around six, like in the late 90s, right before things really started to, to implode in Venezuela. That was like like a year before Hugo Chavez got elected. And my parents, they kind of saw the writing on the wall, especially in '96 when my dad's like small business went under. It's largely due to like the inflation at the time. A lot of people forget that Venezuela had like around hundred percent inflation, like in the mid-90s. And a lot of that stuff like really hit the middle to lower middle classes and below hard. And my family was one of those sectors of the Venezuelan society that got hit pretty hard by that. So my parents were left with like pretty tough choice of looking for greener pastures, especially like United States among other countries. And they decided to do what was like best for my sister and I's future and move to the States. And I've always like paid attention in the background to Venezuelan politics, but I was never like really hardcore into it. I got into the liberty movement basically through Ron Paul, just like lurking around a lot of forums and catching some of his videos. Since then, I've been involved in university libertarian groups such as like Students for Liberty and Young Americans for Liberty. I lived abroad for some time in Chile where I was doing some graduate studies and doing some freelance work for a free market think tank there. And then I got into the realm of grassroots lobbying and copywriting for the National Association for Gun Rights. And now for the past few months, I've embarked in like a more online career as a freelance writer and I mostly write about several topics that range from like gun rights to decentralization. I don't write as much about Venezuela, but I did release an ebook on like what's going on there, which is really like a compilation of like my past 3 years work on the subject with some updates and just like modifications to make it like a smoother read.
0: I'm kind of curious about when you first moved to the U.S. with your family. Uh, I know you were pretty young, but I'm curious how much you remember about that time. And if you can think back to that, like what are some of the differences? Maybe not even politically, because you probably weren't necessarily thinking uh, in that context at the time. But just what are some of the major differences that struck you, uh, if you can recall, uh, when your family first moved here to America from Venezuela?
1: Well, I could kind of tell that things were starting to go bad because around the apartment complex I lived in, I lived in Valencia, Venezuela, which is one of the largest cities in Venezuela after Caracas, the capital, and Maracaibo. It's a city about nearly 2 million people. And the apartment complex where I was at there were like armed guards, like with like machine guns and rifles. I, that was like a very like lurid image of my, like my childhood that I, I still remember to this to these days. But it was definitely from the times i visited, like over the past few years, definitely more stable when you look at it from the uh, relative sense. I mean, I would definitely trade mid '90s Venezuela with all its problems for, for present day Venezuela. But it was definitely a society in. The decline at that time. But really, that's a big theme of what a lot of my works around Venezuela have been about is that Venezuelan society, especially like its economy, has been declining for a while, for multiple decades, in fact. And that's what contributed largely to the rise of Chavismo, Hugo Chavez's ideology there. And that it was not a overnight process whatsoever.
0: So let's dig into that a little bit more. When did it all begin? I mean, at what point, based on the work you've done uh, in regards to Venezuela, would you say that socialism began to really take hold and uh, sort of led to eventually what we see today?
1: Well, I, I come from a historical background, and I like to view things from a historic lens, especially macro trends. And we have to understand that Venezuela didn't just get rich because of oil initially it actually had a pretty hands-off approach to economic affairs from the 1910s up until the 1970s there was like hardly any taxation or regulation central banking only came in until 1939 so venezuela at that time was late to that party and for good reason and It's relatively free economy in conjunction with discovery of oil attracted a lot of of skilled labor from Italy, Portugal, Spain, Colombia, it's next door neighbor, and even Lebanese and Syrian Christians as well. And that created like a pretty strong economic environment for growth and modernization for the country. But in the 1950s. Venezuela was one of the richest countries in the planet on a per capita GDP basis. But a lot of things started to slowly unravel when the country went back to democracy in 1958. And they slowly started to implement a lot of like socialist-like policies since then. There was a bipartisan political order between a party called Acción Democrática, Democratic Action, and COPE, Christian Democrats. They would take turns in power and pursue very similar policies. There was not much of a difference. And in 1970s is when I believe, in my opinion, that the Venezuelan economy was like fundamentally altered when the government completely nationalized its oil industry. This is this goes contrary to a lot of typical Fox News takes. You hear these days that they say that Hugo Chavez nationalized the oil industry. It's factually not true. That was the government of Carlos Andres Perez, uh, the president of, uh, of Democratic Action at the time in the mid-1970s. Since then, the Venezuelan economy has been completely controlled by the state. The state basically treated the oil industry as like a massive piggy bank to dole out crony capitalistic subsidies to companies. To also just hand out money to potential voting blocks, as well as to politicize other institutions like the central bank, the government bought a majority stock in the central bank so that it could pursue a more easy money policy. And not even like a decade took place when the Venezuelan government decided uh, to devalue its currency in 1983 after... Uh, The government engaged in a huge spending binge during the nationalization period of its oil industry because there was a belief that with a nationalized oil industry, Venezuela could pay for all all these types of goods and services through state control, through capturing oil rents and revenue like that and redistributing it. And essentially, it, it went into kind of like a lost decade in the 1980s. Venezuelans actually started to get poor. It was almost expected that from during like the mid-20th century that you that the Venezuelan economy would always grow. But that was not the case. And ironically, in the 90s and late 80s, Carlos Andres Pérez gets reelected and he promises the same bonanza. But once he assumes power, he realizes that the Venezuelan state is completely bankrupt the economy is completely shackled by regulations and government control and overall like Venezuela could not compete on the international level thanks to its protectionist policies so he turns to the IMF which gives him a bunch of half-assed advice like there was some decent stuff like privatization of industry cutting tariffs and some subsidies but didn't really go far enough as far as taming inflation, which was becoming a problem, and privatizing the oil industry. Funny part is that Pedes' own party, Democratic Action, completely hated these reforms because they're a social democrat member of the Socialist International and they um, did not approve. So, they were able to channel a lot of protests out in the street. Even like more radical leftist elements came out. And it resulted in a massive crackdown called the Caracaso in 1989 when inflation was like close to like 60%. And the government actually cracked down violently, killed like hundreds of people. And that was not the end of the political instability. In 1992, you had a man by the name of Hugo Chavez, who was the lieutenant colonel at the time, launched two unsuccessful coups against Carlos Andres Pérez's government. And even though they were failures, they completely shattered the political system. People lost trust in Carlos Andres Pérez. And he was ironically impeached by his own party in 1994, I believe, for like embezzlement charges. And... From that point forward, the bipartisan order of the Accion Democrática and the Social Democrats completely imploded. And that laid the groundwork for Hugo Chavez's movement while he was actually in prison, but was able to pick up a lot of steam because people were on on net poor and hated the political system there. So when Chavez was pardoned in 1996, He had an easy base to tap into. He completely bashed the previous political order. He actually campaigned as a centrist. And by 1998, it was a wrap. Like he won pretty decisively. And most people were really pissed off of the previous political system, but they had no idea what they voted for then.
0: All right. Often you see, uh, these revolutionaries and people get excited because they hate their government so much that they embrace someone who is strong and, and promising change. And obviously, uh, Chavez kind of built his name for himself with those attempted coups, which did, did lead, to lead ultimately to him becoming president. Uh, I do want to kind of tick back a little bit further and try to just wrap my head around how this kind of happens to a nation like Venezuela, where things seem to be going pretty well. They seem to have pretty free markets. Uh, the economy is doing well, you know, in the 1950s. And then at some point, the government just starts to institute more socialist policies, um, perhaps not coincidentally, as you mentioned, as it became more of a democratic country. Is that almost something that's maybe inevitable in some ways? As a country becomes wealthier, um, people might just expect expect more things uh, from that sort of wealthier nation or is there some sort of specifics that you can point to in terms of why Venezuela sort of taken that turn? Obviously, socialism is something that has sort of creeped its way throughout all of South America, you know, over the decades. But what kind of insight can you provide on on the reasons behind why, you know, that turn started to come in?
1: Well, I go over this in my ebook as well. Really, it's a cultural and political institutional problem with Latin America. It just doesn't have the same foundation as like the U S like the U S declaration of independence was based upon classical liberal principles. They weren't just saying like, screw the British. They were actually reasserting rights that they uh, enjoyed as like subjects of the British uh, empire but that the British crown completely destroyed. But the um, in the Latin American case, it was mostly just a group of colonial elites that really just wanted to cre- recreate their own uh, noble fiefdoms because they actually feared that the Spanish government at the time, which was occupied by Napoleon Bonaparte and his brother, were actually going to implement... Very classical liberal reforms and strip colonial elites of their privileges. So, even like in after independence was successfully attained in Venezuela, a lot of these countries maintained really strong colonial mercantilistic um, institutions that were very corrupt, and that was always a very strong rallying point for a lot of leftist ideologies. Because when you look at a lot of the right wing in, in these countries. They tend to be very corrupt, so it's easy for leftists to, to mobilize against them. But in the Venezuelan case, its best governments have historically been under military dictatorships for the most part because they were not very activist in economic affairs. And the opposition to these governments was overwhelmingly socialist-like, even communist. In fact, the founder of like the modern Venezuelan democracy of the Fourth Republic from 1958 to 1998, Romulo Betancourt was a reformed communist turned social Democrat. He was like the founder of Acción Democrática. They actually didn't disagree with the communistic vision. They just disagreed with the means of implementing it. They rejected revolution, but they believed that it could be implemented through the ballot box. And that's always been a really big lingering problem in Venezuela that the overall culture there, especially after the oil nationalization, has been just infected by top-down central planning ideologies. Every party you see, even to the present, and among the opposition, is just completely brainwashed into these ideas. The only exception I would argue is the coalition formed by Maria Corina Machado, who is the leader of a centrist market-oriented party called Vente Venezuela, come Venezuela, there really aren't any free market alternatives in the country. And I think that's not a coincidence. It's part of a larger macro cultural and political trend in the country that's been in existence for the past 60 years or so.
0: I want to discuss, uh, kind of get into uh, the reign of Chavez a little bit more and kind of try to tie that in with when Venezuela became uh, an area of interest to the United States. I believe there is a, a, at least one or maybe more coup attempts uh, believed to be by the CIA, who knows how much evidence we really have to, uh, to that end, uh, against Chavez. And he was also a very outspoken anti-imperialist. So there, there's kind of a few ways you can view Chavez. You can view him as the socialist uh, leader that he, he certainly was. Uh, you can also you know view him as sort of uh, a staunch anti-imperialist. So well, h- h- how much of, of the United States' interest in Venezuela was sort of sparked by Chavez and how much of it can as you as far as you can tell was related more uh, you know directly just towards the oil resources and that sort of thing
1: well interestingly Chavez's first years in office he was actually kind of centrist he even privatized like certain industries I think like in the mining sector but it wasn't after I would say I think things changed after 9/11 interestingly because the US was completely emboldened by that. They were ready to do regime change everywhere. And um, when Chavez tried nationalizing the oil industry in 2002, there was a coup against him that successfully deposed him for a, for a day, but then he was able to get back in power. And there was a lot of evidence that the CIA was involved and that completely emboldened him. He went from like a centrist to a, a full blown radical, but he actually didn't brand his movement socialist till I believe around 2006 or 2007 when he changed his the, part, the party he was part of to the United Socialist Party of Venezuela because his movement originally was the Fifth Republic Movement of Venezuela. And, US has had an interest because like let's face it, US is the most powerful country on the planet and it's willing to do regime change wherever it pleases. And when you see a rogue regime in its own backyard, it's gonna have like it's gonna be involved in some capacity. The thing is that I think like when you look at the neoconservative establishment, their main focus the past 20 years has been the Middle East. So Venezuela has kind of taken somewhat of a backseat, but don't that that should not be confused with the fact that they're they've been wanting regime change for some time there. They've tried getting involved through a lot of these student groups. You see a lot of the really socialist light opposition. Uh, pal around a lot of think tanks in Washington, D.C., like the American Enterprise Institute and other groups um, in efforts to try to topple whoever has been in power, whether it be Chavez or Maduro. Um, I do think Venezuela's entire economic debacle is, for the most part, self-inflicted. It's been collapsing even before Chavez But I think that the U.S.'s policy of trying to do regime change has actually emboldened both Chavez and Maduro's current regime, because that's the problem with sanctions and all these other policies. They end up hurting the people and empowering the government.
0: And then when the people see uh, or perceive that the United States is attempting to overthrow their leader, uh, naturally they're just going to rally around that leader probably almost whoever they are, even if they might dislike their leader, um, a bad leader that they sort of chose or that their country chose through their system is still going to look a lot better to them than the United States coming in from outside and installing their own dictator.
1: That's right. I will uh, point out that the U.S. maintained a a relatively – hands-off policy with sanctions and other like overt regime change type of policies after the 2002 coup. But the Trump administration has been relatively hawkish, though, on Venezuela to an unprecedented degree. And they've given a lot of their measures, a lot of teeth, too. So indeed, they have been trying to topple the Maduro government and it's failed so far. And in fact, um, I've read some reports that Maduro go- the Maduro government is actually stronger than ever.
0: And you think that's in large part due to, like you mentioned, the increasing, uh, I guess, boldness of the Trump administration to sort of put pressure on Venezuela or kind of make them a target once again after the U.S. was somewhat hands off for, for you know the last decade plus?
1: Yes, I mean, there, it's that. I also think, too, the opposition in Venezuela, to be quite frank, sucks, like ideologically. I don't think they offer much, like to get the country moving again i think that they need a very clear free market alternative but it's just not there also the u.s involvement there there's a bigger geopolitical play too um because of the fact that u.s is parked everywhere especially in the middle east superpowers like china russia and even lesser powers like iran have also parked in the u.s's backyard specifically in venezuela Um, as a way to kind of give it the middle finger for a lot of the stuff it does abroad, because the U.S. is no longer the only sheriff in town. We already saw that with Syria. Now that like Russia is heavily involved there and same thing with Iran, that there will be antagonistic powers that will check U.S. foreign policy adventures. And Venezuela is also a staging ground for that now. And that's why you're seeing a lot of hawks. Well, you saw that specifically from like January until April. Venezuela hawks really dialing down um, the pressure there because of like the heavy foreign involvement. But I think it's part of a larger geopolitical game now. We're not talking just about like the failure of like certain Venezuelan economic policies. We're talking about a, a kind of like proxy conflict between certain factions of global superpowers
0: Something I hear a lot uh, from people involved in Venezuela is that uh, there's direct involvement up to possibly including troops uh, of the Cuban government, which actually struck me as uh, pretty interesting because, you know, as far as I know, Cuba's relatively poor. Of course, the people in the government have, have, you know, any money that there is, any wealth there is. It's mostly concentrated there. How much, as far as you're aware, is the Cuban government directly involved in, in Venezuela and with the Maduro government?
1: I forgot to mention them as well. Yeah, they're very involved. Um, Uh I remember when I was there, it was like in 2014, um, there was definitely like some security detail um, that I noticed that had Cuban accents and stuff like that. Because, yeah, the rumor is that a lot of Cuban intelligence and troops are there. And it also makes sense from a geopolitical standpoint because Cuba is part of that same... China, Russia, Iran, Axis, and they've had very good relationships with Venezuela. They get oil and other resources from Venezuela and they're a mutual trading partner because the U.S. hates them as well.
0: So there, there is in some ways it seems just like a, an old school, almost Cold Warish alliance that is sort of – Come together or has remained together, I guess, over the decades uh, against the United States. I guess one of the major differences being, you know, the United States can no longer seemingly just run roughshod all over the place. Now there is a lot of resistance to to overthrowing
1: governments such as that in Venezuela. Oh, definitely, and that's why I, I um, that's why I think like Russia and China that are very involved there because every even like major superpowers like the US, there's gonna always be Imperial overstretch. So they're gonna set up their assets like in our backyard, our blind spot. So yeah, I don't really I couldn't I don't really put it past them considering the US's track record.
0: I want to get a little more into uh, you know the, the most recent goings-on in Venezuela. It does seem there was an attempted coup, an attempt to put uh, this guy Juan Guaido into power. Um, and I'm sure you're familiar uh, with the controversy, some of the controversies that have been going on within the libertarian movement. I'm not going to go naming names. Anybody that kind of follows this stuff knows what I'm talking about. But you know, there are basically a couple different factions out there in the libertarian movement. There are some that really support, not government, I, I don't think any faction in, in, in the Libertarian movement supports the United States government getting involved in Venezuela, but there are those there are some that do support kind of helping uh, certain factions in Venezuela, you know, through through private or voluntary means uh, to sort of get Guyo into power as as in terms of just. Representing the rule of law uh, Some claim he should be the rightful president uh, With the idea being that that could Potentially lead to a an actual Libertarian government perhaps led by Marina Karina Machado who is you know Kind of like a classical liberal, she might not be an ANCAP but she's certainly closer to much closer to that than, uh, obviously, the, the current government's there. And then there are those, there's kind of another side to that that would just say, hands off, um, you know, we shouldn't be involved at all, we shouldn't be supporting this Guaido guy because he's clearly a CIA puppet, uh, and then, you know, coming back to them, they'll they, that that faction will sort of be called, you know, Maduro propagandists and that sort of thing. So, where do you sort of fall within this whole dialogue in terms of how libertarians should be viewing the, the situation in Venezuela? I, I guess specifically, when it comes down to this this sort of cl- conflict over Gaito versus Morduro and you know should libertarians even be picking a side here because i don't think anyone involved is is a libertarian or or an angel of any kind.
1: Yeah this, this is a complicated question but i've actually written about how uh breaking up Venezuela would actually be a good idea especially like a secessionist movement in the western region of the country which is actually pretty pretty dissimilar from the rest of like say caracas and other parts of central venezuela but i prefer like obviously like more privatized alternatives i'd like to see like private defense i'm very partial to those ideas of kind of like decentralizing the country because i think we do need more nation states we need more city states we need more competing jurisdictions but i don't want that to be necessarily done through like state intervention. Now, I think that like, yeah, I've been kind of in the loop on some of that whole controversy there.
0: It's hard to avoid if you're a, a libertarian on the internet
1: sometimes. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I'm not a fan of Juan Guaido, especially his party Voluntad Popular, which is Spanish for popular will. They're a member of the Socialist International They're essentially the children of the failed political order of pre-Chavez era, of the pre-Chavez era. And I think that they'll repeat a lot of the the stupid mistakes and they won't implement the same kind of – they won't implement the reforms that are needed to move the country forward. And I don't even think they might stay in power that long if they somehow get into power too. So – There's that. I think that the country does need like a very strong type of like market-like opposition and the mold of like the Eastern European countries. And also like an almost quasi-nationalist movement, if you will, like Eastern Europe, because it is clear the country, there is like foreign interference, uh, no matter how you slice it. But it's a good way to rally around the issue uh, around like some type of like free market nationalism, but I don't really think in the present moment that there's really much to do there. I do salute efforts to um, conduct like private like ventures inside of there to try to raise awareness and possibly promote a peaceful transition out of its current regime. But I don't trust the current opposition that's there at the moment.
0: Do you believe that Gaeto is, uh, a, you know, actually a CIA puppet in, in the sort of direct sense, or do you believe he just kind of aligns with their current interests? So you know, perhaps they're backing him for you know some sort of short-term game.
1: I haven't really looked into the topic that much. That being said, from what I've gathered, he has been involved in a lot of like the DC think tank sphere especially those groups of students, the guy's young. He's, I think he's like 35 or 36 and the opposition has been trying to put some people in the Washington DC pipeline, try to get them trained.
0: Always a little suspicious. (laughs)
1: Like one of the people that has been pretty notorious in promoting that is Roger Noriega of the American enterprise Institute. He goes around like Latin America. uh, He does a lot of decent projects like promoting like market oriented stuff and educating like Latin American politicians and would be politicians there about um, certain free market principles. But I think with the Venezuelan class, um, these people that you're dealing with, they're all social Democrats for the most part. And. Um, they're not going to implement fully a lot of the stuff that they'll impart on them. And also it's AAI, which is a pretty neocon, conservatism, Inc. type of institution. So there's not much to expect from them there. And um, I can't really point to anything that says that he's a CIA puppet, but I do think he aligns with American interests since they want to get Maduro out. And th- they wanted to make a, pol- a geopolitical statement to countries like Cuba, Russia, and China.
0: Where does this idea come from? I hear this a lot, and I've never really fully understood it, um, that Gaido is actually the rightful president through some sort of constitutional manner, which is a, an interesting outlook for libertarians to take, but I, some do point to that point, whatever it may be, in the hopes that, you know, at least installing the rightful government could lead to elections, which could lead to an actually better or more libertarian government. But where does this idea that he is somehow the more rightful president than Maduro, obviously neither of of them are, are ideal from a libertarian perspective, but do you know where that idea comes from?
1: Yes. In 2018, Maduro called a snap election after a lot of pressure from like the opposition so that he could like establish his political legitimacy it was going to try to play out like other presidential elections where the government would hold an election that was laced with a lot of fraud like well at least allegations of fraud and all that and then like the government would win the opposition would complain rinse and repeat well it didn't go as planned because when maduro launched his snap election the, mo- the majority of the opposition abstained. In fact, I think that was because of orders from like the State Department and other international organizations to specifically do that. And what was left of the opposition to Maduro in that snap election was a candidate by the name of Enrique Falcón, who a lot of people think is controlled opposition. He was a former Chavista that defected to the opposition in Venezuela. And he's always been on kind of friendly terms with Maduro. Like they disagree with the way the country's going, but he's kind of like a palatable opposition for the government to handle. And Maduro ended up winning in a landslide, but the opposition did not recognize the results. And they used that as a play that this entire SNAP election was illegitimate and thus according to the venezuelan constitution the legitimacy of this election leads to the leader of the national assembly juan Guaido, becoming the interim president of the country for the time being
0: so he he was never even running for president uh, they're just saying that it's because of the because maduro's snap election they're saying was legitimate by default if if you accept that that was legitimate by default according to the constitution Gaito would be the leader, you know, if he accepted that
1: premise. Yeah, that's basically the play. Now, the problem with that is that I think like this is my more nuanced take. Venezuela is so institutionally and culturally depleted that you can't rely on constitutional tricks to somehow topple that regime. They were essentially using a political play to gain international recognition. But in Venezuela, at this point, you have to have pretty strong military force behind you to like enforce that part of the constitution. And the opposition does not have that, nor do they have enough popular support on the ground to do so. But I think that Venezuela has hit such a primitive state of politics that's gone like really back to basics it's all politics comes through the barrel of a gun, just like Mao Zedong said. And that's where Venezuela it is. It's like, a, it's kind of like in a state of nature. So I think like the whole, that whole coup thing, that was just cosmetics. Like they never had any type of armaments or ability to dish out punishment towards the government to even topple that regime. That was just a paper candidacy launched by the state department in, Hopes of somehow toppling the Maduro regime, which has always had pretty strong control, not only just through the state, but also through a lot of the criminal and paramilitary elements there. And the opposition in Venezuela, it's big but not big enough to topple Maduro.
0: How does someone like Maduro stay so popular uh, in general? I mean, you mentioned that he does have you know pretty widespread support, even as the economy continues to collapse, even as things seemingly just get worse and worse and worse as far as, far as inflation, uh, food shortages, and all this stuff. How does someone like that maintain popularity through such terrible conditions?
1: Well, one thing to note, this is not occurring in a vacuum. A lot of people have left Venezuela which includes a lot of people that could potentially be in the opposition. So the brain drain really hurts the opposition bad. So it's not a matter of uh, Maduro receiving overwhelming support from the populace like exclusively. It's also the fact that he has an environment that's pretty favorable towards the incumbent. It also helps that he has foreign governments propping him up like China, Russia, Cuba, and you have an opposition that's pretty feckless as well. It's a perfect storm for a tyrannical incumbent there. And yeah. And I think like this goes to show that like in politics, like it's not about necessarily having the right ideas. If you cannot mobilize, you will not win. That's plain and simple. It's a, it's a very value neutral art where, Those with the best tactics and mobilization strategies are the ones that end up coming out on top. And so far, the Maduro government has that in their favor.
0: Hey, friends, I got to take a quick pause here to tell you about another great libertarian podcast out there. It's called Free Man Beyond the Wall, hosted by the artist formerly known as Mance Raider, now known simply by his real name of Pete Raymond. And I got to tell you, Pete is a machine. This guy brings you a new episode of his own every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And he has done some absolutely fantastic in-depth interviews. He's had on everybody from Ron Paul to Thaddeus Russell to Phil Labonte, the lead singer of All That Remains, a very diverse group of guests not always libertarians. He also did a great show with a Washington DC insider lobbyist revealing a lot of the dirt that goes on behind the scenes in DC. He has done so many interviews that I have just said, darn, I wish I did this one myself. So I really do want to highly recommend checking out Freeman Beyond the Wall. You can find it over at freemanbeyondthewall.com as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and all those fancy podcatchers out there. One thing I definitely want to touch on, uh, because it's something that you write about so much and that you're so passionate about, is the topic of gun control as it relates to Venezuela. Uh, when did gun control start becoming a factor in Venezuela? And how do you see things playing out in Venezuela if it had just, you know, maybe done everything it had tried to do over the years, but had remained, you know, had allowed an armed citizenry? C- citizenry? Um, and maybe we can learn some lessons uh, from that, uh, you know, based on what a lot of people want to see here in the United States as it relates to gun control.
1: Uh, First of all, Venezuela really never had the Second Amendment. In fact, starting like in the 1930s, it passed very draconian gun control where you could only have like single shot, like 22 rifles. And the only way you could carry like a handgun was if like you were like the military or private security and you had to also jump through a bunch of hoops. So that's just not there, and this goes back to one of my previous points that, like, the Anglo-Saxon Saxon tradition of, of like an armed citizenry, whether it's like a militia or private citizens owning guns, was never really a thing in Latin America, especially in Venezuela. The only people that generally had guns in those in, the, in Latin American countries were people connected to the nobility, soldiers, certain members of law enforcement, and in modern times, private security which is heavily licensed by the state and paramilitary or criminal elements. So that never really existed. What you see people talking about now were specifically these measures like this armament measures that were passed both under Hugo Chavez and Nicolás Maduro, where they confiscated certain firearms in response to a lot of the crime waves that Venezuela's had. Crime waves have been a thing in Venezuela since the 80s. And that's part of the economic and cultural breakdown of the country. And the only people that really have the guns now are like the militias connected to the state, the and criminals and the government, obviously. But I think that, yeah, it does show that like the Second Amendment, a lot of people take for granted here because in times of crisis, you definitely want it. You definitely don't want to be Unarmed because the history of tyrannical governments and gun control is inextricably linked, and you could see it from even like Cuba, Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, Mao's China. They always seized the guns or took advantage of previous gun control measures to seize guns under tyrannical regimes, and it's it's an insurance policy ultimately. Against tyranny, against like complete breakdown. Because in Venezuela, what we see is not necessarily like a Soviet system of like systematic tyranny. You see a form of anarcho tyranny, meaning where the government just lets criminals run loose without impunity and just uh, attack and prey upon the population. They don't have to send like jackboots in to tyrannize people they they have a lot of paramilitary and criminal actors to do that and it installs fear in the population and when you're when they're disarmed they have no means of fighting back against it
0: so people just generally just completely feel paralyzed because you know they're kind of getting hit from every angle whether it's economically uh, the government cracking down or like you said these these all these non-government actors that they're just completely defenseless against
1: yeah it's it's essentially that there are a lot of people i have like some distant family members and friends that I still am in touch with that end up getting guns on the black market because that's how they they're going to survive there. But a lot of people don't do that because they prefer to be law abiding in that sense. But there are peripheral areas, especially in Western Venezuela where people have just said, screw it. We're going to get guns regardless of whatever like freaking laws are in the books. And that's what generally happens because when you're talking about survival, you're going to do whatever it takes to make it out one day or live another day. So yeah, it's definitely a Mad Max situation there. And a lot of times it pays to break the rules.
0: I'm just curious uh, as we wrap up here, Jose, just your general thoughts after obviously you're, you know, growing up there and your, your connections with family and the people you still know there combined with all the research you've done on this topic in the past few years, is there any hope? I mean, is there any hope to see a non-socialist, non-strong-armed government in Venezuela? Is there any hope for the libertarians? That I, I know there are libertarian movements uh, in Venezuela, as, as small as they may be. Is there any hope that some of this can turn around eventually? Or are, are we just at the point where we're kind of at the point of no return and it's, it's just going to sort of continue to spiral?
1: In the short and medium-term I'm pretty pessimistic because I think the country needs to be ideologically and culturally red-pilled. Until that happens, you're going to see a lot more of the same. Either the government's going to stay in power or if the opposition somehow pulls it off, it's going to be a very weak government that doesn't do the right reforms that are needed to get the country up and running again and then it's gonna probably switch back to some like permutation of um of chavez or maduro's regimes uh it's pretty bleak i think in the long term anything's possible and we already saw that with the collapse of the soviet union after nearly like 70 years in power it eventually disintegrated and you saw some positive developments with the baltic tigers like estonia latvia and lithuania and I think Venezuela should look at those examples or, like, other Eastern European countries and Central European countries that had socialist governments or puppet governments there as models. But right now, it's I find it very difficult for the country to move forward. And I think in the next five years, I wouldn't expect much different. Well,
0: hopefully uh, enough Venezuelans can somehow, you know... Catch a few minutes of Wi-Fi and stumble around w- along the right libertarian free market content or ideas somehow, and uh, you know eventually red pill enough people to make some change. But obviously, um, this is not going to be an easy battle. It's not the kind of change that's going to happen overnight. And in some ways, it really does make you appreciate that for all the problems in the United States, for all the talk of socialism, and there certainly is a lot of talk of it. At least we do have the underlying concept of freedom uh, that we can keep pointing back to. Whereas a country like Venezuela. Simply doesn't even have that base at all so there, there's not even you know that that older culture to point back to or that base culture where you can kind of draw from it has to really just be generated f- from the ground up uh, jose it's been a great time talking to you i really do appreciate your perspective uh on venezuela can you just um let everybody out there know before i let you go how they can find all your writing and um how they can of course get access
1: to your books okay yeah if you go to my website josealnino.com You can find my works there specifically on my newsletter, josealnino.com forward slash newsletter. And to get my books, just go on josealnino.com forward slash how hyphen socialism hyphen destroyed hyphen Venezuela for my Venezuela book. And for my gun book, it's josealnino.com 10 hyphen myths hyphen gun hyphen control and for social media i'm mostly on twitter at jose Nino. and yeah that's those are the main places i'm at i have a daily email list i'm mostly tweeting my articles at mises.com ammo.com and big league politics Uh, i'm generally very active on social media with regards to topics like say gun rights or Whatever it's hot in the U.S. as well. I'm not writing as much on Venezuela these days, though. All right, well, Jose,
0: I really do appreciate your time. I'll be sure to link to everything you mentioned in the show notes for today's episode. Please do keep up the great work. I know I don't don't need to tell you to do that, and keep on roaring, Jose.
1: Thank you so much, Mark.
0: All right, kitty cats. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jose Nino, an often requested guest. And when my fans and friends make requests of me, I try to deliver. I do my best. You can get into our ear by heading over to our forum, the Lions of Liberty Forum, our group on Facebook. You have to answer a very tricky question to get in about how you first found out about this podcast, and then you can interact with us and communicate with us, and if you want to interact with us on an even higher level, up to and including potentially monthly calls, you can support us on Patreon, fight the man, fight YouTube for demonetizing us, and support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. That is largely what keeps this show go- going. We do not take a dime out of that for ourselves. Myself, Brian, and Odie put every single penny from that Patreon right back into this program. Help us go to events like Porkfest, like the Libertarian National Convention, which you plan to go to again next year, like Childerberg Dose. We're going to hit all the major Libertarian parties, at least all the ones that we can head to. You like how I say parties, <laughs> not events, because they are parties. When you meet up with a bunch of Libertarians in random places across the country, it becomes a party. It becomes a place to make Make new friends and connect with people. So I highly recommend people do that. Uh, but you can support us doing that again by heading over to patreon.com/slash lions of liberty. If you can't make it to everything, you may as well send us to these things and help us do podcasts and videos and all sorts of fun things like that. But friends, don't forget, it's not just me here. I know it seems like it's just me with my epic Monday roars, but I have friends, I have compatriots, I have more fellow Lions of Liberty here with me on the Lions of Liberty podcast feed three podcasts for the price of one, and that price is free. All you gotta do is hit that subscribe button and you get three amazing podcasts each and every single week, starting with me on the flagship program every single Monday when I bring you interviews like the one you heard today, debates sometimes, roundtable discussions when we do libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor. We have so much fun on the flagship, but it doesn't end there because Brian McWilliams smacks you upside the head with his weekly shot of mispronunciations, comedy, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land, while John Odie Odermat wraps things up every Friday with his incredibly inspiring, hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system on felony friday you get it all here each and every week on lions of liberty without fail we don't take breaks we don't take vacations we deliver no matter what is going on in our lives because we make things happen because we love you we love you for being here we love you for listening we love you for downloading and we love you for being a part of this amazing growing libertarian movement and until next time friends
1: live long
0: and live free